another edition of Covered by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me today. On today's episode, it's going to be a little different because the topic of today will be sola scriptura, or scripture alone, the Bible alone. Uh, in this podcast, I typically talk about things related to the law or the government, tyranny, things like that. And I base my foundations upon the Word of God. And recently, I've had some good discussions with several friends of mine on the importance of the Scriptures and whether or not they are or should be considered the final authority on on any particular matter, whether it's a theological matter or something like politics, government uh, laws, and things like that. So recently, I wrote an article that addresses the concept of sola scriptura and provides a defense of it, as well as some counter-arguments against the, typically the Roman Catholic or perhaps maybe Eastern Orthodox positions, because my friends who I was engaged in a discussion with hold to either the Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox position. So even though the recording that I made specifically looks at the arguments from Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, I do believe that this, the positive presentation of Sola Scriptura will be helpful and useful, especially for those of you who are trying to understand what is the final authority upon which we base everything else. So without further ado, my article on Sola Scriptura. Section 1. Defense of Sola Scriptura One of the most often challenged Protestant doctrines is the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone. The reason why this doctrine is challenged by Roman Catholics and the Eastern or Greek Orthodox churches is because it lies at the heart of the very issue that separates Protestants from the other two groups. In a sense, if our ultimate authority is different, or is defined differently, then everything else follows. It is quite hard, for example, to debate doctrines such as total depravity, unconditional election, papal infallibility, or the Immaculate Conception of Mary, if our starting points are completely different. To begin, this paper will first offer a positive definition and understanding, i.e. apologetic, of sola scriptura. Second, this paper will then offer some key criticisms, i.e. polemic, of the Roman Catholic position. Finally, this paper will address some common questions regarding sola scriptura. Section 2. Apologetic. Prior to any discussion of sola scriptura, it is important that a workable definition is put forth. In this paper, the concept of sola scriptura refers to the idea that scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith for the church. This can be further explained in three key aspects. First, sole infallible refers to the idea that scripture is the only source or authority that can claim infallibility, incapable of error and without contradiction. There are certainly other useful sources of authority, such as creeds and confessions, yet those other sources are not infallible. They are authoritative insofar as they conform to the ultimate, that is, sole infallible, standard, scripture. Number two, rule of faith refers to the idea that scripture is given for a specific purpose. To refer to 2 Timothy 3.16, scripture is given to equip the believer for every good work. That is, believers are to bear fruit for God, and have been given scripture so as to be fully complete or sufficient to accomplish that. 
This does not mean that other Christian sources, such as creeds and confessions, cannot serve as derivative rules of faith. But again, those rules of faith are only authoritative insofar as they conform to the ultimate rule of faith found in Scripture. Furthermore, Scripture is not to be seen as the Encyclopedia Britannica. That is, while Scripture is all true and all correct in what it teaches, there is true knowledge that exists outside of it, such as general revelation. General revelation does not contradict special revelation, for they are both God's communication to mankind. Yet they have different focuses and each have a part to play in God's interaction with mankind. The primary focus or domain of Scripture is that of faith, salvation, and good works. Third, for the church refers to the idea that Scripture was given to God's covenant people. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the people of Israel received the Old Testament. Under the New Covenant, the people of God, that is Christians, received the New Testament. The Scripture is therefore directed primarily and preeminently to Christians, although there are implications for unbelievers. Scripture is also received by the church and recognized for what it is, the Word of God, that which is God-breathed. At this point, it is worth also defining what is meant by Word of God. In this paper, the phrase refers to the specific message communicated by God to his covenant people. It is special in the sense that it is to be distinguished from how God communicates to all mankind generally. Psalm 19, 1-6. The word of God in this way is direct, personal, and linguistic. It is made up of words and word pictures. Furthermore, the word of God throughout history has been communicated through active agents in the following ways. Through prophets and apostles, such as Ezekiel 6, 1, and 1 Thessalonians 5.13, through angels, seen in Zechariah 1.9, and through the Son of God, John 13.34. This is also made clear in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-2. through 2. Quote, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. End quote. Another aspect of the Word of God is that it is primarily linguistic, that is, involving words and word pictures, as opposed to dreams and visions. This does not mean that God has never communicated through dreams and visions. Yet, whenever a prophet or apostle received a vision or a dream from God, such as Daniel or John, that vision was always accompanied with explanation from another mediating agent, typically an angel. In Daniel, Ezekiel, and John, we see an angel accompanying the prophet or apostle and helping him to understand what he was seeing. There was always an explanation given to the vision or dream. This stands in contrast to the use of dreams and visions among pagans. In those cases, such as with the Oracle of Delphi, there was often the use of mind-altering drugs without any divinely given explanation or commentary on the vision. In the case of biblical prophets and apostles, the person receiving the vision or dream was in his right mind, without the use of drugs, and was always receiving guided instruction. While God certainly communicated through the use of guided dreams and visions, God primarily communicated to his people through direct words. God is perfectly capable of doing this, 
not only because he is the one who made the mouth and the tongue, but he is also the one who guides and directs the mouths of his prophets. Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. Furthermore, we see a certain preeminence of words over dreams and visions in Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, which reads as follows. Quote, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and stood at the entrance of the tent, and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. End quote. The importance of the direct use of words from God to his people in the form of human speech demonstrates that God considered the use of human speech as sufficient to communicate his thoughts to mankind and to hold his people accountable. In other words, just as all of mankind is without excuse because of what has been communicated through general revelation, Romans chapter 1, so God's people are able to be justly judged on whether or not they obey God's direct communication to them in special revelation, Romans chapter 2. A final but equally important aspect of the word of God is that it is covenantal. That is, there is a pattern that God uses in communicating to his covenant people. 1. A significant salvific event occurs, such as Noah's flood or the Exodus. 2. A significant amount of time is given in explaining or describing the event. 3. There is significant description of the life and death of the covenant head. 4. There is the giving of law or teachings to the covenant people. We see this pattern in the various covenants throughout the Bible, but most especially in comparison between the Old or Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. Consider first the Mosaic Covenant. 1. A significant salvation event occurs. The Exodus. 2. A large amount of detail is given about the event. The Ten Plagues of Egypt. 3. There is a heavy focus on the life and death of the covenant head. Moses. 4. There is the giving of law or teachings, the Mosaic Law, and Ten Commandments. Now consider the New Covenant. 1. A significant salvation event occurs. Life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. 2. A large amount of detail is given about the event, the four Gospels. 3. There is a heavy focus on the life and death of the covenant head, Jesus. 4. There is the giving of law or teachings. Sermon on the Mount, and Apostolic Letters. Within this covenantal structure, we also see the use of covenant documents. In Exodus chapter 34, God commanded Moses to write the words of the covenant 
with the covenant documents, the tablets of stone, to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Furthermore, we see that the Hebrew Old Testament was organized in such a way that the writings of the prophets came after the writings of the law. The prophetic writings were, in this way, commentary on the law, and a call to Israel to return to covenant faithfulness. Under the New Covenant, we see a similar structure. Luke is convinced of the importance of writing down the events that he has seen and studied. Luke chapter 1, verse 3. In Revelation 1, verses 11 through 19, the Apostle John is commanded to write down the things that he sees and to communicate the information to the church. We also see that the New Testament is organized in a similar fashion to the Hebrew Old Testament. The narration of the salvation event, the four Gospels, is then followed by commentary and additional teachings, the letters, as well as a call to remain faithful to the covenant, Hebrews. Furthermore, the importance of writing God's words in a timely manner is seen throughout the entire Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18, the king is commanded to write his own copy of the Mosaic Law as soon as he takes the throne so that he would not forget it. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 9 through 13, the people of Israel are commanded to periodically assemble together to include men, women, and children in order to hear the entire reading of the law that had been written down. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, God commanded Joshua, upon taking the mantle of leadership, to continually meditate on the book of the law so that he would not turn to the right or to the left. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8, Isaiah is commanded to write the words of God, quote, on a tablet and, quote, in a book, as a witness against a rebellious people. This is, again, a call to return to the original covenant relationship. In Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, the prophet is commanded to eat a scroll from the Lord and then to speak the words against the people of Israel in response to their breaking of the covenant. The minor prophet Habakkuk is commanded by the Lord in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, to, quote, write the vision, and, quote, make it plain on tablets, in order that, quote, he may run who reads it. This again is in reference to judgment that was about to come upon Israel. Those who actually read the words of the Lord spoken through the prophet Habakkuk, and believe them will run for safety. To give a final example, we see in Psalm 102 verse 18 that the psalmist desires for his words to be, quote, recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, end quote. In summary, the pattern we see in the history of God's people is that God performs an act of salvation, gives them direct communication, and commands them to write it down for the purpose of remembrance or accountability, and for the benefit of future generations. Given this foundation, how are we to understand Sola Scriptura? Well, Sola Scriptura is simply a description of how God is always related to his people. Throughout all of redemptive history, God has always pointed back to the covenant documents and called his people to repentance and obedience. This is seen particularly in the New Testament, when Jesus corrected the Pharisees, whenever there was a disagreement regarding either doctrine or practice, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, usually with the phrase, quote, have you not read, end quote, and then proceeded to quote scripture to them. 
Jesus did not appeal to an authority outside of Scripture. And even when he appealed to his own authority, giving new commandments, he was being quite consistent, given that he is the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh, John chapter 1, verse 14. This makes sense, given that God is the ultimate authority, the source and fount of truth, beauty, and goodness. God can make no higher appeal than to himself and his own word, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. In this same way, God's covenant people who receive his word cannot appeal to anything higher than God's own words. This leads us into considering the formation of the New Testament. After the salvific event of Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, as well as the inauguration of the New Covenant, it would have been expected for there to be covenant documents. This appears to be understood by the apostles themselves. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 16-17, through 17, Peter places Paul's writings in the same category as, quote, the other scriptures, end quote, which at that time also referred to the Hebrew Old Testament. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, Paul refers to the phrase, quote, the laborer deserves his wages, end quote, as scripture, a phrase that is only found in the Gospel of Luke. By putting Luke 10, verse 7 in the same category as Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, Paul is clearly recognizing the divine authority of Luke's Gospel, an authority equivalent to that of the Mosaic Covenant. Additionally, Paul himself recognized that his own writings were authoritative. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 27, where he commanded the church to read his letter out loud for everyone, a pattern matching that of the Old Testament prophets. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, Paul also declared that what he was writing was, quote, a command of the Lord, end quote. Going back to his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul thanked his fellow believers for receiving the word of God that he and the other apostles had communicated to them. They received it as the word of God, not the word of men. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Ultimately, we see that it is God who moved and inspired certain people, namely the apostles, to write the new covenant documents. It is important to note that it is God who spoke through them as the Holy Spirit led. They were not inherently, on their own power or inspiration, writing scripture. Presumably, not every document that Luke ever wrote should be considered scripture. As a doctor, he probably wrote many things, even before he became a believer, as Paul probably had done too. Yet those writings were not, and should not, be considered scripture. This is no different than the pattern of the Old Testament. For example, King Nebuchadnezzar probably wrote many things during his life, but one letter of his was indeed inspired by the Holy Spirit and bore divine authority as the Word of God. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 18, and Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 37. At this point, one might ask, given such wide-ranging human authors, how could we possibly know which documents were scripture and which were not? Before answering this, it is important to avoid placing ourselves as judges over God and his Word. In other words, the tendency in these conversations is to demand that a document meet certain external or man-made standards or requirements before it can be granted the title of Holy Scripture. 
we must remember that any ultimate authority, in order to be the ultimate authority, does not answer to a higher authority. If we use an authority to judge another authority, then the standard we use to judge is, by definition, the ultimate authority. If God does indeed swear by himself, and does not need to appeal to a higher authority, then we can say that God's authority, as well as his commands, that is his law word, is self-authenticating and inherently authoritative. This is because the authority is grounded in himself, not in something or someone else giving him that authority. With this in mind, the question is, what should we expect to happen or see when God speaks to his people? That is, what are the characteristics of Scripture by which we recognize it for what it is? There are essentially three things that we see in the pattern of redemptive history. One, a prophetic or apostolic connection. The words come from God through his human instruments, namely the prophets and apostles. God's word, therefore, is connected intimately to those individuals that he calls and sends into the covenant community. Either the apostles or prophets themselves write the words, or someone closely associated with them is the instrument used by the Holy Spirit. 2. Divine Qualities Imprint of the Spirit Since God himself is the fountain of all truth, beauty, and goodness, the word of God will also bear those qualities. As we see in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, the word of the Lord is, quote, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb, end quote. In this way, the word of God is beautiful, harmonious, not contradictory, and an accurate reflection of God's will, nature, character, and redemptive purpose. 3. Response among God's people. When God speaks, his people respond. This is very much in line with John chapter 10, verse 27, when Jesus says, quote, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. End quote. When Moses presented God's covenant documents to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, they responded, quote, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. End quote. Quite simply, when God speaks to his people, they record his word, respond to his word, obey his word, propagate his word, preserve his word, and proclaim his word. Let us take the specific example of the book of Revelation. The moment that the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos, it was, by its very nature, the word of God. That is, it was ontologically the word of God before anyone other than John had seen it or read it. It was already authoritative, bearing authority, before any other Christian had obeyed it. It was already self-authenticating, bearing the marks of God's word, before any of the seven churches had heard it read to them. Immediately upon completion, the book of Revelation already bore the marks of divine quality, as well as an apostolic or prophetic connection to the Apostle John. Furthermore, it was already added to the, quote, list of divine books in the mind of God. For whenever any author writes something, as soon as the book is written, there exists a list of that author's writings. Perhaps only the author himself knows that list because he has not yet sent that book into the world. Yet a list exists nonetheless. In this way, Revelation was, quote, added to the, quote, list of New Covenant documents the moment that it was written, even before anyone else 
had read it. But once God's people were exposed to God's word, in this example, the book of Revelation, they received it. They copied it, preserved it, proclaimed it, and obeyed it. It immediately began to function as God's word, convicting the heart, strengthening the faith, and nourishing the soul. In fact, it began to function as God's word before all of the churches had a chance to read it. Even before it had spread throughout the Roman Empire, the book of Revelation began functioning as God's word. It functioned this way because it was ontologically already God's word. Finally, as the book of Revelation spread throughout the churches, there came consensus and consistency. Multiple churches in multiple areas of the world recognized and responded to Revelation as the word of God because it was. If, ten years after John's original writing, a church in Gaul was first exposed to Revelation, the reception and response of nearby churches to Revelation would have had a positive impact on the church of Gaul. In this way, the church is a thermometer responding to God's word rather than a thermostat determining God's word. If someone within the church in Gaul made a challenge to Revelation, that church could talk to other churches in the area and confirm that indeed Revelation was very much being recognized as the word of God and was already functioning as such among the people of God. The church did not declare or give divine authority to Revelation. Rather, the church functioned as the pillar of truth, not the source of it. The church recognized the truth, upheld the truth, and presented the truth. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Yet the source of that truth remains with God and in what God actually said. This pattern of God's word being disseminated among his covenant people culminated in the various covenant documents being collated and collected into one book or codex, the Bible. The enumeration of lists, table of contents, is a man-made tool, like chapter and verse divisions, developed in order to easily organize which books or letters are recognized by the church as God's word. But again, the church does not bestow or grant authority to scripture. It receives and recognizes, just as sheep do, the authoritative words of the shepherd. Section 3. Polemic. Given this understanding of sola scriptura, it is important to compare this to the Roman Catholic understanding of God's word. And while I do not claim to be an expert on all Roman Catholic doctrine, in my discussion with Roman Catholics and my reading of the councils of Trent, Vatican I, and Vatican II, and other documents, I believe that I have a basic understanding of their position. First, Catholics would affirm that Scripture is authoritative, inspired, and God-breathed. They would also believe in the authority of the magisterium, as well as in sacred tradition. This essentially forms a three-legged stool, in which there is no contradiction, but an equal authority among Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. By Scripture, they would refer to those books listed and officially recognized in the Council of Trent including the deuterocanonical books. By tradition, they would refer to specific oral teachings passed down through the church from the apostles that were not contained in scripture, but are allegedly supported by, or at least not contradictory to, scripture. Finally, the magisterium is understood to be the God-given authority of the Catholic Church, including, but not limited to, 
the infallibility of the papal office. Now, there are problems with how the Catholic Church defines these three categories, as I hope to briefly demonstrate. First, the Catholic position regarding Scripture appears to be more declarative rather than receptive. That is, the Catholic Church claims authority to declare which books are in and which books are out. As I pointed out earlier, God's Word is self-authenticating. The Church certainly has a role to play in receiving responding to and recognizing God's word for what it is. Yet, this is not an authority over what constitutes God's word. In other words, God's word existed and functioned even before the church constructed an enumerated list of books. It was only able to produce such a list because those books were already recognized and received by the covenant community. Furthermore, the Catholic Church's decision to incorporate the deuterocanonical books is a serious error. St. Jerome, who helped produce the Latin Vulgate, did not view the deuterocanonical books as equally authoritative to the other books. The first century historian Josephus listed the same books as found in the Protestant Old Testament, although he numbered them differently, attaching Ruth to Judges and Lamentations to Jeremiah. Among the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, Athanasius, and Epiphanius all affirm the desire to conform the Christian Old Testament to that of the Jewish canon. And even though they have slight disagreements on the ordering and placement of books, none of them lists any deuterocanonical book as canonical or divinely inspired. Even at the time of the Reformation, Cardinal Cajetan, a contemporary of Martin Luther's, had some misgivings about the divine authority of the deuterocanonical books. In his commentary on all the authentic historical books of the Old Testament, written in 1532 and dedicated to Pope Clement VII, Cardinal Cajetan affirmed the position of St. Jerome and suggested that the apocryphal books were not to be treated as canonical in the same way as the other books. This is just one example of the lack of unity that was seen in the Catholic Church up until the Council of Trent, 1546, when the Deuterocanonical books were officially declared to be part of the canon of Scripture, and those who rejected the books were to be anathematized. Of course, the Deuterocanonical books certainly were and can be useful, but historically they have not been recognized as Scripture. Aside from the already given examples, the Jews themselves neither laid those books up in the temple, nor recognized them as authoritative. And while some Jewish groups seemed to affirm additional books, they were of a minority opinion. Additionally, neither Jesus nor the apostles ever quoted from those books as authoritative, despite the fact that they would have been known to them. Lastly, it is important to note that in the Jewish ordering of the Hebrew scriptures, the first book is Genesis, and the final book is Chronicles. When Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, condemned the Pharisees for killing the prophets of God, he stated that they were guilty of bloodshed, quote, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, end quote. Interestingly, Abel is understood to be the first prophet who was murdered in Genesis, while Zechariah was the last prophet who was murdered in Chronicles. In this way, Jesus bookends the entire Hebrew Old Testament, declaring that the Pharisees were guilty of all bloodshed committed against the prophets from Genesis to Chronicles. 
similar to the way that we would say from Genesis to Revelation, or from A to Z. If the apocryphal books were indeed viewed and accepted as scripture by the Jews, it is strange that Jesus would not have mentioned those prophets who were also martyred during the time of the apocryphal books. The second Catholic position, regarding tradition, is equally problematic. This is because there are numerous traditions and extra-biblical sources from which the Catholic Church could choose. Again, who decides which traditions are in and which traditions are out? For example, Irenaeus, living from around 130 AD to 202 AD, argued in against heresies that Jesus was approximately 50 years old when he died. Yet that belief has been rejected by both Roman Catholics and all Orthodox churches, as far as I know. Again, we must ask the question, which traditions are the correct and authoritative traditions, and which ones are not? While some might argue that God's word continues to exist outside of Scripture, in oral form, that is a significant break from the pattern we see in redemptive history. Covenant documents are written down fairly quickly for the purpose of accountability and preservation. To suggest that there are oral traditions being handed down to this very day that were never written in Scripture is quite a deviation from God's typical interaction with his people. Furthermore, even those oral traditions were eventually written down by somebody in some sort of document. They might not be considered as Scripture, but they are still in written form nonetheless. For example, if one today were to defend doctrines such as papal infallibility, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, or the bodily assumption of Mary, one would make reference to some sort of written document, whether it was dated to the Middle Ages or to the modern period. In effect, the claim to oral or non-written tradition becomes blurry when one considers that all oral traditions have eventually been written down. Whether it is intended or not, these new written traditions function as authoritative as Scripture rather than being subjected to and under the authority of Scripture. Regardless, it is quite a problem to suggest that a key teaching, a dogma, of the church remained in verbal form for many centuries before it was finally written down, and that this teaching is of equal authority to the New Covenant documents. Interestingly, when we look at redemptive history, we see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that Scripture, the covenant documents, are appealed to in order to correct wrong behavior or wrong belief. One example can be seen in Mark chapter 7, verses 1-13, through 13, which is worth citing fully here. Quote, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all of the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace... They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, 
you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. End quote. In this passage, we see that the Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of not adhering to the quote, tradition of the elders. End quote. This was part of the oral tradition or the unwritten Torah that formed a key tenet of the Pharisees' practice. The Korban rule mentioned in the passage would eventually be compiled with other practices into the Mishnah during the 1st and 2nd centuries after Christ. Yet, at the time of Jesus, the Korban rule was still an oral tradition and viewed as authoritative, that is, passed down from Moses. It essentially allowed someone to dedicate their property or wealth to the temple, which the temple would receive upon the person's death. Yet, while that person was still alive, they could use their property or wealth to sustain themselves. This allowed people to avoid having to care for their aging parents, with the excuse that their wealth had already been dedicated to God. In response, Jesus uses the written word, the scriptures, as the standard upon which to judge the oral tradition of the Pharisees. He judges their tradition as wicked and as a violation of God's commands. It is important to point out here that Jesus is not condemning all human tradition. There are always going to be traditions, the traditional way of doing things. Yet he is establishing a precedent and a pattern. All tradition must be judged by a higher authority, scripture, the covenant documents. Bringing this back to the Roman Catholic understanding of tradition, since sacred tradition is viewed as equally authoritative to sacred scripture, scripture is unable to be the final authority by which tradition is judged. Of course, one might argue that sacred tradition never does and never will contradict scripture. Yet how would one know? If scripture cannot be used as the final measuring stick upon which a tradition is judged, there is no way to know whether or not a particular tradition is good or bad. And of course, there is still the issue of which traditions get accepted and which get rejected, like Irenaeus's view of Jesus' age. This brings us to the final leg of the three-legged stool, that of the sacred authority of the magisterium. Now, I do not intend to spend too much time going over the doctrine of papal infallibility. It is probably sufficient to say that, throughout Catholic history, there has been debate on whether the office of Pope has authority over a council, or whether councils have authority over the papacy. The history behind this is messy, and involves looking at the Council of Constance, the various Lateran councils, and the fact that as many as three popes existed at one time together in history. While one might argue that it is only the office of pope that is infallible, rather than the person, it is difficult, if not impossible, to know when exactly a pope is executing his office in that infallible fashion. This difficulty is seen in history, as there have been several popes who appeared to be acting in accordance with their office, but were later deemed, either by subsequent popes or councils, to be in error. What this means, practically, is that one cannot know, in the moment, whether or not a pope is speaking in accordance with his office or not. 
This is because at any given time in the future, a later pope or council could deem the past pope's actions as invalid or without divine authorization. Now, if one were to suggest that councils are more authoritative and cannot err in their decisions, the problem still remains of numerous contradictory councils. For example, the Council of Ariminum or Rimini, in 359 AD, was attended by approximately 400 bishops and ended in the affirmation of the heresy of Arianism. Three years later, in 362 AD, the Council of Alexandria was called by St. Athanasius and ended up reaffirming the Orthodox belief of the Trinity. According to St. Jerome, it is because of this council's decision that, quote, the world was snatched from the jaws of Satan, end quote. Yet how can anyone say that one council was wrong and another right? Each of those councils claimed to represent the magisterium of the time and were only held three years apart. Some higher standard is required to make the final determination. If one were to argue that the authority of the Pope determines which councils are authoritative, the problem is just shifted over by a degree. For example, Pope Honorius I, known for helping to convert the Anglo-Saxons, died in 638 AD. Yet, just over 40 years later, during the Third Council of Constantinople in 680 AD, less than 200 bishops voted to anathematize Pope Honorius I for his connections to heresy. In this situation, we see a council having the authority to anathematize a previous pope 40 years after that pope's death. Yet at the time that Pope Honorius I was alive, his decrees and declarations would have been authoritative and would have been treated as such by his contemporaries. In the end, the actions of councils and popes, while seemingly acceptable and authoritative in the moment, can always be overturned by later councils and popes. The result of this system is that the contemporary magisterium, those leaders of the Catholic Church in office at the present time, wield ultimate authority over both scripture and tradition, rather than a system in which sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and sacred magisterium execute co-equal authority, what results is what can be described as sola ecclesia, church alone. Consider the following. 1. The magisterium determines what defines or constitutes tradition and what tradition means what it is, and how it is interpreted. 2. The magisterium determines what defines or constitutes scripture, and what scripture means, what it is, and how it is interpreted. 3. The current magisterium determines what defines or constitutes past church decisions, that is, papal decrees and council decisions, and what those decrees and decisions mean. The result is that the modern or contemporary Catholic Church those in authority who are living and ruling today end up being the sole infallible rule of faith. Scripture will certainly be honored and respected, but the church decides what scripture is and what scripture means. Tradition will certainly be honored and respected, but the church decides what tradition is and what tradition means. This is important to recognize since, as was pointed out earlier, there will always be an ultimate authority above which one cannot appeal any further. While the Catholic Church might proclaim a co-equality of the three branches of authority, it does not and cannot function that way. 
it always finds an ultimate authority in something. Sadly, it finds its functional authority in an ever-changing human magisterium. In contrast to this, the concept of sola scriptura recognizes what God's people have always recognized throughout redemptive history, the divine authority and self-authenticating nature of God's word. This concept is found not only in the scriptures themselves, but even among early Christian writers. Of course, the early church fathers were not perfect. Again, consider Irenaeus' view of Jesus' age, yet they understood the preeminence and authority of God's word. Below are just a few citations from several important Christian fathers in the faith. From Irenaeus, quote, But while I bring out by these proofs the truths of Scripture, and set forth briefly and compendiously things which are stated in various ways, do thou also attend to them with patience, and not deem them prolix, taking this into account, that proofs contained in the Scriptures cannot be shown except from the Scriptures themselves, end quote, from Against Heresies. From Irenaeus, quote, Since, therefore, the entire scriptures, the prophets, and the gospels can be clearly, unambiguously, and harmoniously understood by all, although all do not believe them, and since they proclaim that one only God, to the exclusion of all others, formed all things by his word, whether visible or invisible, heavenly or earthly, in the water or under the earth, as I have shown from the very words of scripture, and since the very system of creation to which we belong testifies, by what falls under our notice, that one being made and governs it, those persons will seem truly foolish who blind their eyes to such a clear demonstration and will not behold the light of the announcement. End quote from Against Heresies. From Athanasius, quote, But this all-inspired scripture also teaches more plainly and with more authority so that we in our turn write boldly to you as we do, and you, if you refer to them, will be able to verify what we say. For an argument, when confirmed by higher authority, is irresistibly proved. End quote. From Against the Heathen. From Athanasius. Quote, Let this then, Christ-loving man, be our offering to you, just for a rudimentary sketch and outline, and a short compass, of the faith of Christ, and of his divine appearing to usward. But you, taking occasion by this, if you light upon the text of the scriptures, by genuinely applying your mind to them, will learn from them more completely and clearly the exact detail of what we have said. For they were spoken and written by God, through men who spoke of God. But we impart of what we have learned from inspired teachers, who have been conversant with them, who have also become martyrs for the deity of Christ, to your zeal for learning in turn. End quote. From Against the Heathen. From Augustine. Quote, for whatever man may have learned from other sources, if it is hurtful, it is there condemned. If it is useful, it is there and contained. And while every man may find there all that he has learnt of useful elsewhere, he will find there in much greater abundance things that are to be found nowhere else, but can be learnt only in the wonderful sublimity and wonderful simplicity of the scriptures. End quote from On Christian Doctrine. From Augustine, quote, Let us treat scripture like scripture, like God speaking. Don't let us look there for man going wrong. 
it is not for nothing, you see, that the canon has been established for the church. This is the function of the Holy Spirit. So if anybody reads my book, let him pass judgment on me. If I have said something reasonable, let him follow, not me, but reason itself. If I have proved it by the clearest divine testimony, let him follow, not me, but the divine scripture. End quote. From Sermon 162c, The Works of St. Augustine. In the end, Sola Scriptura recognizes both the authority of the church and the usefulness of traditions. Yet both the church and the traditions are under the authority of scripture. A true church can be discerned from a false church by looking at the scriptures, for the scriptures define for us what a true Christian and a true church looks like. A good tradition can be discerned from a bad one by looking at the scriptures. If that tradition, including creeds and confessions, is in line with scripture, then let it be adopted and celebrated. But if that tradition runs contrary to our new covenant documents, then let that tradition be discarded. For the church is washed by the word of Christ, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, a sure word from God that has been written for our sake. Questions and Answers Question 1. If Protestants claim that only doctrines found in Scripture can be believed, then how can they believe in Sola Scriptura, which is a doctrine not found in Scripture? Answer. The principle and practice of Sola Scriptura is certainly found throughout Scripture. While the specific words of the definition that I gave earlier are not found, which is a straw man argument, the concept is clearly there, as I have shown. Similarly, other doctrines, such as the Trinity, are found clearly in Scripture, even if the exact wording of the Creed of Chalcedon is not. The practice of the formation of covenant documents, which hold the highest authority over the covenant people, is clearly portrayed throughout Scripture. Question 2. Protestants lean on 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 to prove Sola Scriptura when it does not appear to be teaching that. How do you explain the application of this passage? Answer. As I mentioned earlier, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 describes the sufficiency of God's word for every good work in the life of a Christian. All that a believer needs to live the Christian life is found in it. That does not mean that there is no place for either church authority, including discipline, or traditions, which are various forms of liturgy. Yet those things must always be judged by the authority of Scripture. Insofar as the church or tradition is obeying Scripture, then those church actions or traditions are useful and good. I do not argue that 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 precludes the usefulness of traditions or the church. Yet, the usefulness of such things in teaching the believer is a derived usefulness based on the final authority of Scripture. The whole point of Sola Scriptura is to affirm that there's only one source that is infallible and ultimate, that which is breathed out by God, Scripture. Question 3. How do you explain 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, which seems to describe oral tradition? Answer. First, the context of that entire chapter is in reference to the return of Jesus Christ and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. Paul encourages his readers not to be deceived by either a spoken word or a letter that is, quote, seeming to be from him, end quote. Paul then tells them that God will send a strong delusion 
to those who are perishing, causing them to believe what is false. He then concludes by thanking God that the believers were chosen by God to be first fruits. Paul describes the Thessalonians as being called through, quote, our gospel, end quote, referring to the good news that he and the other apostles had been preaching. He then exhorts them to stand firm to the traditions that they have been taught, either by spoken word or by written letter. We see then that the traditions that Paul is talking about are made up by both words and letters and are clearly tied to the gospel that he wants them to hold fast to. This makes sense, given that Paul is both traveling, preaching, and writing letters, having already written one to the Thessalonians previously. Yet are we to suggest that the content of the letters differs from that of the spoken words? The passage seems to suggest that the content of both is the same, the same body of teaching, but has been communicated in two different forms, because Paul and the other apostles are still actively preaching. And of course, since Paul and the other apostles have long since been dead, what we have today in Scripture is the full and accurate description of those apostolic traditions concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. It would be quite strange to suggest that doctrines such as the bodily assumption of Mary, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, and papal infallibility were being taught by Paul to the Thessalonians, and yet, for several centuries, those teachings were never written down. Question 4. How can Protestants account for their list of 66 books in the Bible? Answer. Those books are self-authenticating and authoritative. Even if there were no man-made enumerated list of books, God himself knows infallibly which books are his books given to his people. God spoke to his new covenant people in the Gospels and letters, which the people of God recognized as such and collated into one easy-to-manage book, the Bible. The books were both ontologically God's word and were functioning authoritatively as God's word before the church ever composed a list of them. The church, therefore, receives the books and recognizes them rather than determines their authority or inclusion. This is identical to how the people of Israel received and recognized the books of the Old Testament. The Jewish council, or Sanhedrin, did not authoritatively declare which books were in and which books were out. There was no Jewish council that declared that the scroll of Isaiah, which Jesus read in the temple, was to be considered canonical. To give another example, the leading authorities, including the king of Israel, at the time of the prophet Jeremiah, ordered Jeremiah's scroll to be burned, resulting in God commanding Jeremiah to make another one. Jeremiah chapter 36. The point is that no human authority is needed to declare or give authority to certain books. The books bear their own authority, which the covenant community receives and responds to. Question 5. How can the book of Hebrews, having an unknown author, be included in the canon? Answer. Hebrews clearly had an immediate and authoritative function upon the church when it was written and promulgated. Furthermore, its divine qualities are clear when considering all other examples of established scripture. Lastly, while the exact author is not known, it has been narrowed down to a list of individuals all having a clear apostolic connection. The name of the author does not need to be written into the text. Rather, we recognize the nature of the work and all three of the qualities that we expect to see. Apostolic connection, 
divine quality and response from the redeemed community. Even if the specific author's name is neither known nor written in the book, it still might very well have a clear apostolic connection, as well as a positive response from the covenant community. On the other hand, a book might have an apostolic connection, or a claimed apostolic connection, but have neither divine qualities nor a positive response from the redeemed community. An example of this would be the alleged Gospel of Thomas. Another book might evoke a positive response from the redeemed community, but not have a full divine quality or an apostolic connection. This would be something akin to a useful Christian document like the Didache. And finally, a written document might have an apostolic connection or be from an apostle, and neither have a divine quality to it, nor evoke a positive response from the community of faith. An example of this might be a grocery list written by Paul, or a prescription for medicine written by Luke. Question 6. How can Protestants account for the diversity of belief that has resulted from Sola Scriptura? Answer. The diversity of belief is not a result of a weakness in Scripture. In the Old Testament, God was particularly clear in the law that he gave to Israel, and yet Israel disobeyed it. Even in the New Testament, the apostles fought against disunity and heresy from the very beginning. Yet this was not due to a weakness in their own ministries or teaching. Christ himself had his own teachings twisted during his lifetime, Matthew chapter 26, verse 61. Yet this was not a weakness or flaw in his words. Furthermore, even under the Catholic system, there remains great diversity of belief despite a claim of unity. Yet the unity that God's people have is only going to be formed by the application of Christ's word through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the word of God that brings unity in Jesus Christ, as Christ himself prayed in John 17. In fact, there is great unity among those denominations who all hold to, believe, and affirm Sola Scriptura. That is, those denominations who truly believe that Scripture is the sole, infallible rule of faith for the Church and seek to submit themselves to the teachings of Scripture are unified in every essential doctrine. There may be variations in liturgy and other matters of tradition, but the core unity is there. It is not a man-made unity in name only, but a unity through the Spirit, by the truth of the Word of God. Question 7. Is not the Word of God more than just the written text? Can it also be oral? Answer. As I pointed out earlier, the Word of God is direct, personal, and covenantal, mediated through human or angelic instruments. The pattern we see throughout redemptive history is that God acts, God speaks, and man receives it and writes it down for preservation and posterity. When we do see traditions that claim authority, but are not grounded in the written covenant documents, such as the Corban rule, we see danger creep in that is corrected only by an appeal to the covenant documents. The problem with the Catholic understanding of tradition is that certain dogmas are declared to have been passed down in oral form for centuries, without ever having been written down. Yet, when the magisterium decides that such a teaching needs to be declared dogma, it then proceeds to write it down. It then treats that dogma as having always been believed, even in seed form, by the church, despite no record of it ever being taught for centuries after the apostles. This becomes a process that can never be checked 
by any ultimate or higher authority. For, at any given time, the contemporary magisterium may declare a doctrine to be a dogma without any historical support. It could then write it down and treat the new dogma as equally authoritative as Scripture. And while the Catholic Church technically affirms a closed canon of Scripture, in a sense it does not really function that way. This is because the contemporary magisterium, the church leadership existing in the present, has the ultimate authority on what constitutes true tradition and what true tradition means. Question 8. Is not scripture unclear to the point that help is needed? Can it really function on its own? Answer. When Jesus corrected the Pharisees and quoted scripture to them, he expected them to understand what he was talking about. The weakness is found in man, not in the word of God. Yet all essential doctrines, those required for eternal life, can be easily discerned even in just single documents like the Gospel of John or Romans. The scriptures themselves point out which doctrines are of greatest importance, spiritual milk, over those which are more advanced, spiritual meat. That being said, God's people are meant to be in community. Christians should consider the teachings of the church and the writings of those who came before them. All such things are under the authority of Scripture, but may very well be useful in helping a Christian to grow faster rather than trying to learn everything on his own at an individual pace. As I said, there is always a place for tradition and church teachings. For example, the Nicene Creed is an excellent summary of items that are essential to the Christian faith. Yet that creed has usefulness and authority only insofar as it lined up with the teachings of Scripture. Question 9. How can Protestants ever have certainty regarding the authority and identity of Scripture? Answer. It would be wrong to suggest that Protestants cannot have certainty simply because there is no official church declaration of what constitutes the canon of Scripture. Again, the Scripture is self-authenticating, and the Holy Spirit moves the people of God to receive and recognize scripture for what it is. While the Catholic might feel a heightened sense of certainty by appealing to the magisterium, he actually places himself on less certain footing. For, as has already been shown, the magisterium can change its mind tomorrow, adopting as dogma an idea that had no mention in history until many centuries after the time of Christ. Furthermore, the magisterium could, if it wills, declare any previous council or pope as anathema. And who could challenge such a decision? One might argue that the Holy Spirit guides the magisterium so that it would not make such an error. And while the historical record demonstrates that this has not been the case, I could equally point out that the Holy Spirit does indeed move the people of God to receive and respond to the written word of God without need of a declaration or an official stamp of approval by a council or a pope. In the end, all people desire certainty, yet we must make sure that this certainty is grounded in what is true. Even in the Garden of Eden, Satan challenged Eve's certainty by asking, quote, did God really say, end quote. Her lack of certainty was not due to a weakness or lack of clarity in God's word. Rather, she moved her epistemological grounding from God's word to Satan's word, and, in a sense, to her own word, to be like God. Yet the truth is that, as the writer of Proverbs 30, verse 5 states, quote, Every word of God proves true. 
He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. End quote. That is where the believer finds certainty. Question 10. Does not sola scriptura result in every individual Christian being his own pope? Answer. While every person has to make their own decision whether or not to submit to God's word, we believe that there is a true and correct meaning to scripture. While some passages require more work and maturity to discern than others, all scriptures have a proper meaning and interpretation that can be discerned. As was mentioned earlier, God's people are designed to live in a community, not as hermits. The church has been given authority to teach and to exercise discipline upon individual believers. Yet the standard that is used for teaching and for discipline is the divinely inspired, God-breathed, covenant documents, which exist today only in written form, that is, scripture. In this way, no Christian is his own pope, because no individual Christian can ever claim infallibility or divinely inspired authority. The text of Scripture has one meaning, with many applications. The duty of the Christian is to read, learn, and obey the covenant documents as a member of the covenant. The duty of the church is to help teach, guide, and disciple the Christian to adhere to and honor the covenant. Yet the ultimate standard remains the covenant, or constitution, of the community. On the other hand, the Catholic system functions as sola ecclesia, with the magisterium being able at any time to, quote, discover new and more numerous dogmas. Because the magisterium, in practice, functions as the ultimate authority, despite its claim to the contrary, the result is chaotic due to the ever-changing nature of what constitutes dogma and true doctrine. Question 11. Does not everyone use some sort of tradition to interpret scripture? How is it that there are so many differences of opinion regarding interpretations among Protestants? Answer. First of all, the problem of differences in opinion do not go away when we adopt the Catholic model. For there are many differences in opinion among numerous Catholics who are all members of the Catholic Church in good standing. Second, the issue of differences in opinion has always existed. How is it possible that Satan could twist God's word and convince Eve to disregard the command of God? How is it possible that Satan could take a portion of Psalm 91, twist it, and then tempt Christ with it? How is it possible that Jesus could talk about the temple of his body being raised on the third day and yet be accused by others of threatening to destroy the temple in Jerusalem in three days? Was Jesus failing to be clear enough? In all of these things, the issue is the heart and spiritual maturity of a person. As the Holy Spirit brings a person from darkness to light, they will begin to see and understand things regarding God and his actions in the world. And this is a state of spiritual infancy, where those newly born in Christ feed on spiritual milk. As a person grows in spiritual maturity, their knowledge of Scripture grows, as well as their ability to systematize the teachings of God into an organic whole. The church, including its creeds and confessions, can help to systematize things so that an individual can avoid having to, quote, reinvent the wheel. In other words, the new believer should take advantage of the knowledge and guidance passed to him from previous generations of mature Christians. Yet new believers can do this while always keeping in mind that God's law word, the covenant documents, remain the final authority. In fact, like the, quote, more noble 
Jews of Berea in Acts chapter 17, believers should always examine the scriptures to determine if what they're being told about God is true. Regarding the place of tradition, it is important to keep in mind that everyone has epistemological starting points. We all approach the text of scripture with certain assumptions, biases, and traditions. Care must be taken here to not use the word tradition too broadly. A bias or an assumption is not necessarily a tradition, but equally colors the way a person interprets and applies scripture. That being said, one must remember that God is both able and capable of communicating to his people. In other words, if God wanted to speak to us, could he? Is he able to overcome our biases, traditions, and assumptions? Certainly, we see that in other areas of life, such as politics, race relations, and science, people are able to have their assumptions, biases, and traditions challenged and changed. That is, people are not slaves to their traditions, assumptions, and biases, for if that were the case, then there would be no point in conversing with radical Muslims. Yet even radical Muslims can be westernized and secularized to the point that they abandon Islam. The reverse is also true. If that is the power of secularism, or Islam, how much more capable and powerful is the Holy Spirit to change hearts through the proclamation of the gospel? While people approach scripture with biases, assumptions, and traditions, those who have been drawn by the Holy Spirit and united to Christ are having their biases, assumptions, and traditions challenged by that same Holy Spirit through scripture, that is, the sword of the Spirit. The pace in which this happens is faster in some and slower in others. Furthermore, those believers who are actively engaged in the covenant community will likely grow faster and become more capable. One example of this is Apollos, who knew the scriptures but was not quite right in his understanding of them until Priscilla and Aquila explained things more accurately. Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. The very fact that Luke describes Priscilla and Aquila as explaining the way of God to Apollos, quote, more accurately, implies that there is an accurate way to understand the words and actions of God. To be more accurate implies that one is getting closer to the correct interpretation and proper application. In short, differences in opinions exist because of a variety of reasons. Some people are not believers, but twist scripture for their own purposes. Some are immature Christians who are growing in their faith, maybe without any help from their local church. Some are very mature Christians who have grown in their ability to systematize the faith and apply it to every area of their lives. In all cases, Christians must always examine the scriptures to discern any of their own blind spots, biases, assumptions, and traditions. This is the heart of what it means when we say semper reformanda, always reforming. Question 12. It seems that the Achilles heel of sola scriptura is the issue of presuppositions. How do Protestants avoid circular reasoning when they presuppose the 66 books of the Bible? Answer. First, all epistemological systems are circular in a certain sense. Actually, it would be more accurate to describe them as spirals rather than circles. They are spirals in the sense that they all begin at a starting point and then develop from there. 
not exactly in a circle, but in a spiral. This is because we are creatures, rather than the Creator. God Himself is the source of all knowledge, all that is known, was known, or ever could be known. As creatures made in His image, we have a derivative knowledge. We think, or ought to think, God's thoughts after Him. What is true is true, because God ordained it and declared it to be true. By the very nature of the creature-creator relationship, the only correct and proper epistemological spiral is one that begins with God. Of course, since God is wholly other from us, existing in a sense completely distinct from us, the only way that any knowledge can come from God to us is if God reveals himself. In this way, he must stoop to our level and communicate with us. He must take the initiative to do this. He, in fact, did this when he formed Adam from the dust of the earth, breathed into him the breath of life, and communicated to him directly. In effect, God interacts with his people, and this is where the epistemological spiral begins. Second, as was mentioned before, general revelation reaches all humans, regardless of their spiritual state. As Paul makes clear in Romans 1, all of mankind is accountable to a certain knowledge of God that they have. In some sense, they know God, yet they, quote, suppress the truth. By the mere fact that they are made in the image of God, they have a sensus denivitatis, sense of the divine. Despite their claims to the contrary, they can be said to know God. They are covenant breakers, being that they are an Adam, and yet the fingerprints of God still remain on them. They attempt to form their epistemological spiral apart from God, that is, to be like God. Yet they cannot do so perfectly. They cannot escape the fact that they live in God's world and are made in God's image. They borrow or steal from God in order to rebel and rage against him. For those who are brought from darkness to light, who are born again, they are given a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26. They are dry bones who are spoken to by the word of God. And through the preaching of the word and the moving of the Holy Spirit are raised to spiritual life. Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 1 through 10. They are reconnected and brought back into covenant with their creator who is the source of truth, beauty, and goodness. In this way, their epistemological spiral is established properly in God. Rather than rebelling and raging against God's word, they repent of their sins and receive God's word. This is what is meant by the self-authenticating nature of God's word. If it is the words of the king, the king's decree, it has inherent power and authority. It is the sheep hearing the voice of the shepherd, and spiritually, by the power of the spirit, knowing that voice and following it. The presupposition of those who hold to sola scriptura is not that 66 books are assumed to be scripture. Rather, the epistemological starting point is quite simple. There is a God, and he has spoken. This is similar to, and derived from, the very first verse of the book of Hebrews, quote, Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Based upon this epistemological starting point, 
we would expect that God's word would have an effect upon his people moved by the Holy Spirit. As was explained earlier, the process involved a salvific event that inaugurated a covenantal relationship that was then communicated through some sort of documentation or permanent inscription. While it might be said that other groups like Mormons make similar claims, there are several warning flags that demonstrate the falsity of their claims. 1. No salvific event occurred when they claimed to be receiving new revelation. 2. The supposedly divine words were not received or responded to by the covenant people. 3. There is contradiction and lack of harmony with previously established revelation. Interestingly, the Catholic system also contains an epistemological spiral, but in a slightly different form. While Catholics might assent to the idea that there is a God and that he has spoken, the function and practice is more akin to the idea that there is a church and it has spoken. This is because, functionally, the church authoritatively declares and decides what God's word is and what it means. God's words neither speak for themselves nor do they self-authenticate, but require the magisterium to authenticate and interpret them. Instead of receiving and responding to God's words, the magisterium presumes to decide and declare what God's words are. Again, a Catholic might deny this to be the case, yet this is what functionally happens in the actions of the magisterium. For example, while the Catholic Church affirms the existence of Scripture, it claims the authority to determine which books are in and which are out. It does this in the name of avoiding confusion and to provide a certain level of certainty, as we discussed earlier. Yet one might ask how the magisterium knows that it has the authority or ability to perform these actions correctly. In addition to a citation of Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, and 1 Timothy 3, 15, a Catholic might cite several early Christians that seem to affirm the church's authority in this matter. Yet who determines what those scripture passages mean? Who determines what those early Christian writings mean? Well, only the magisterium can. In this way, the epistemological certainty regarding the determination and interpretation of both scripture and the early Christians is found solely in the magisterium. This is, functionally, an epistemological spiral that begins not with God's word, but with the church's word, sola ecclesia. Useful works. These are some recommended works that I found to be useful. Scripture Alone by Dr. James White. The Question of Canon by Dr. Michael Kruger. Canon Revisited by Dr. Michael Kruger. Insights into the Doctrine of Scripture from the Old Testament, Part 1, by Pastor Dan Cafesi. Insights into the Doctrine of Scripture from the Old Testament, Part 2, by Pastor Dan Cafesi. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Thank you. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that fairly lengthy article on Sola Scriptura and that you found it to be useful and perhaps something to have some discussions with uh, with your friends or co-workers or family. If you have any questions about Sola Scriptura or anything else that I brought up in my recording, please feel free to reach out to me on Facebook or Twitter. You can 
look up the GBG podcast, or you can email me at the GBG podcast at gmail.com. And I would certainly enjoy uh, having further discussion on the topic of scripture alone. So thank you again for tuning in. Uh, please feel free to share this episode with your friends, family, and co-workers. Uh, give the thumbs up, stars, reviews, all those things help to get this uh, podcast out to more individuals. And until next time, take care and God bless.